All right. Tonight we're going to return to our series on why we use the King James Bible. Unfortunately, there's been a three-week break in this series. I apologize for that. Let's get back on track tonight. So in week one, we considered Satan's strategy. When Satan first shows up in the scriptures, he does so casting doubt upon the word of God. Yea, hath God said. And then he offered Eve a revised version of God's word. And you say, well, it was just slight changes. That's true. But the slight changes altered the meaning greatly. We saw how Satan attacks God's word through omissions, additions, and substitutions, which is still his tactic today. And this will become clear once we get to the point where we're going to compare side by side the King James Bible with primarily the ESV, since that's what's creeping into independent Baptist churches, as we heard from the letter I read tonight. The second week, we considered the issue of preservation. God is able to preserve his word through copies, and that's important because if all you can trust is the quote-unquote originals, then you're in trouble because there are no original autographs left. There are just copies of the originals. And so we need to understand that we can trust the copying process when God oversees it. The third installment, we considered how there are two sets of manuscripts, one from Antioch, one from Alexandria, down in Egypt, and where do you want your text from? What was the hub of Christianity in the first century, or what was the hub of mixed religions, Hellenized thinking down in Egypt? Last time we considered how the enemy was already infiltrating the first century church to pull people away into false doctrines, and remember the apostles were still on the scene. They were eyewitnesses, and so they could easily refute any of the false teachers that came along, and and they could... No, I was there. You know, I saw him. And they could easily refute that in their day. Now, John, he was the last of the apostles, and he was sounding the warning already about the spirit of Antichrist before he went off the scene. And remember, the spirit of Antichrist is denying that Christ is God in the flesh. And so he was already saying, look, it, it, there's already many deceivers gone out. Many Antichrists have gone out in the world. And... So we looked at these different passages where things were creeping in, uh, unawares, privily, and that's how Satan seeks to infiltrate churches with false doctrine. The Revelation, uh, most agrees, the last book written of our New Testament, and false doctrines had already crept in then. Remember that as he's writing to the church in Pergamos, he talks about the doctrine of Balaam, those who were holding to that doctrine. Uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the church in Thyatira. They had allowed Jezebel, that prophetess, the Bible says, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And so with this spirit of Antichrist already in the world and continuing to grow, after John's death, it would make the road to apostasy through false teachers easier uh, to adopt. And this brings us to where we left off because we're going to pick up at the close of the first century, and move forward secularly, uh, extra-biblical, if you will, uh, as we go tonight. So John the Revelator, the last of the apostles, he's now off the scene, and there were some men who began to rise to prominence afterwards. And they were not like the apostles. Uh, 
they did bring in damnable heresies that Peter warned of. And that'll be our jumping off point tonight. If you want to turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter, we'll start at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And so this is going to be extra biblical tonight, primarily, which means we're going to look at things outside of the Bible and look at some secular history. But this passage will make sense on why we're starting here, and I touched on this, I think, last week. But in 2 Peter in chapter 1, I want you to look with me, please, beginning in verse 20. And it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Chapter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And so are you seeing this contrast here with the two verses at the end of chapter 1, with the two verses at the beginning of chapter 2, there were holy men of God who received God's Word as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then we have the contrast of the lies of the false prophets who would bring in damnable heresies, even denying Christ, it says. Well, what is that? It's the spirit of Antichrist. And so we're being told that this is going to happen. And, and many, it says, follow after their destructive ways. So in our series, we've come to the point in history when the apostles are no longer around. And we can imagine how things would have become just a matter of opinion. We still hear that kind of talk today. And some believed Scripture could be a matter of private interpretation. And so, we're still dealing with that today as well. With the apostles gone, all that was left to understand the things of God was the Word of God. But what was the Word of God? Well, if you read even early 2nd century literature, you'll see they they believed the books that we have were the Word of God. So something has to give here. How how do we end up with all this false teaching? And so you had this reference to these epistles, these things that you and I are reading now, and they considered those to be authoritative then. And, And yet, we've ended up where we're at with all of this confusion on the issue. And so, with only the Word of God, somebody could come along and say, no, I believe this is what it says. Come on now, this is what we deal with now. And so somebody could just come along, and if that person was a big enough personality, you're going to maybe be drawn to that person. We still see this today. There's certain men, if I, if I say their name, you, you Billy Graham. Oh yeah, what? The preacher to six presidents or something like that. Good night, he's like the queen of England. Amen. Die already, amen. Oh yeah, pastorly, sorry. So the... You hear something like, and what I'm trying to say is there's these, there's these men, these people that have 
very drawing personalities. And, and as people are drawn to that, they're really listening more to what he has to say than what God has to say. That's how we end up with all kind of false teaching, even in independent Baptist circles. Because my favorite old-timer of the past said it. Great, what does God's Word say? And so what had happened was the stage was now set for the rise of textual critics with the apostles off the scene. And that's what ultimately has led to the corrupt manuscripts from which every popular modern Bible version is taken from. The spirit of textual criticism was around in the first century, as we studied last time, but it gained momentum in the second century and beyond. And textual, textual criticism is what brings in false doctrines. And the reason why is because textual criticism, what it does is it seeks to change the Word of God to what someone thought it should have said. They're critical of it. And, and they want it to say what they believe it should say instead of just leaving it alone for what it says. And they will interpret it to what they think it should mean as opposed to what it says. This is why you've heard me say many times, I try very hard to let you know when something's my opinion. I don't want you just to run with something I say. What does God's Word say? And so, in essence, textual critics seek to correct God's will, if you will, uh, God's Word, if you will. They modify the Word of God to suit their beliefs. Now, you could spend hours upon hours researching this subject, and I have. And the men who have risen to influence in the second and third and fourth centuries. And you'll find quite a web of teachers and followers of those who came on the scene and how they influenced the world at that time. And they were teachers to the next generation and so on. And so I really debated how in depth do I take this part of our series because I don't want to inadvertently turn it into some sort of quasi-college class. It, after all, we are meeting in a church service tonight. I don't think we should spend all of our time, all the time, on extra-biblical stuff. So for sake of time, I'm just going to highlight a handful of men as I work my way to explaining how we got the corrupted Alexandrian text. And if you're so inclined, you can study these men more yourself, more in depth, and you'll have fun doing that. Amen. You'll just be like, it's time to go to bed uh, honey, I don't even need the medicine tonight, amen. I'm just like, I don't take anything. I'm just, it was a joke. It was a bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Pastorly. This is going to be a hard habit to break, but I'm going to do it, and you're going to be impressed with me because I ain't messing around no mo in 24. <laughs> now, by way of full disclosure, I want you to know that while I have drawn from many books and many works, I am leaning heavy on Bill Byers' book entitled The History of the King James Bible and the People Called Baptists for my outline. For those who don't know much about the history of our church, Bill Byers uh, was the late husband of our own Jenny Byers. And in that book, he dedicates it to her as a faithful servant. And uh, she's still serving the Lord today. Amen. Amen. What a testimony in her life. And so we're going to see now how these damnable heresies such as denying the Lord Jesus Christ began to make their way into the corrupted manuscripts after the apostles were no longer around. And I want to be clear, I'm not judging any of these men's salvation. That's not up to me, that's up to God. And so I want to be clear on that. 
We'll let God settle all that out on Judgment Day. It is generally agreed the Apostle John died in 100 A.D. In 85 A.D., a man was born who rose to prominence named Marcion. And he taught the God of the Old Testament differed from the God that Jesus Christ talked about, God the Father. That you had a a mean God of the Old Testament, but what Jesus was talking about was a different God who was benevolent. And this is what this man taught. He didn't see Jesus as God, and he believed that Jesus was created, therefore he could not be equal with God. He denied that Jesus came in the flesh bodily and basically taught that Jesus was only a semblance or that He only appeared to be human, but really was just an illusion. Yeah, this stuff went on in like the first century. People just whack, amen? And as a result of that belief, He denied Jesus' physical birth, His physical death, and His physical resurrection. He would pick and choose which scriptures He wanted to believe in or which ones suited Him. And so he discarded the gospel accounts altogether, except for Luke. And he took Luke's gospel account and he modified it to get rid of the birth, because of course he doesn't believe in a physical birth. So he got rid of that and he, he butchered the gospel of Luke. Um, and in fact, if you ever study this, you'll, you'll see it's, it's sometimes called the gospel of Marcion, or the gospel of the Lord, unfortunately. And so it's, it's been given a different name, but it's, essentially he just took the gospel of Luke and destroyed it. And so he rejected all of the Old Testament, because remember, he thought the God of the Old Testament was just a meanie. And he rejected whatever epistles he didn't want to deal with, such as the pastoral epistles. And this guy was so whack that even those who were whack said he was whack. (laughs) Did you catch that? He was declared a heretic by those who we would consider heretics. And so why bring this man up? Well, for two reasons. Number one... He garnered enough of a following that his teachings became known as Marcionism. And it illustrates how readily false doctrines were being accepted and people were following after those things. And number two, he aligned himself, and this is really the important thing, he aligned himself with facets of what is known as Gnosticism. And some even identify him as a Gnostic, uh, which is the belief that man's wisdom is ultimately what leads to salvation. Because I can understand the Bible, I must be saved. It's, it's all about wisdom, Gnosticism. And that's why agnosticism is just being dumb on purpose. And so, in part, this is how Noah Webster defines Gnostics. Quote, a sect of philosophers that arose in the first ages of Christianity who pretended they were the only men who had a true knowledge of the Christian religion. They formed for themselves a system of theology agreeable to the philosophy of Pythagoras, and Plato, to which they accommodated their interpretation of Scripture. And that was Noah's definition in 1828. And I bring this up because a large part of textual criticism is rooted in Gnosticism. But God's Word says, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And we know 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so the Bible just shoots holes all through Gnosticism and says, no, Christ is our wisdom. Amen. And so Gnosticism, I'm bringing this man up, it was slowly starting to be accepted in the second century. Now, if the apostle John died in 100 AD, then that same year a a man was born named Justin. He was known as Justin the philosopher. Now, shouldn't that give you a little bit of hesitation right there? And because he would be put to death for his beliefs, he became known as Justin Martyr. And today, Justin Martyr is venerated as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church along with some other groups, and you'll often hear him referred to as an early church father. Once you study what he believed, you'll see why the Catholics so readily embrace him as a church father, and you'll easily discover Justin Martyr is no Baptist church father. Justin Martyr was born to pagan parents. That's not a disqualifier, by the way. I'm just telling you who he was. But he had a difficult time dropping his pagan roots. And then when he started his search for truth, he really immersed himself in the Greek philosophy of his day. At least four different areas of Greek philosophy he went to school on. And he ended up mixing pagan Greek philosophy in with Christianity. And if you remember, that's what the term Hellenization is. And he went so far as to suggest that Greek philosophy, namely Plato's, and Plato's kind of the one that sticks the most with these guys, but he he talks about how Greek philosophy is what paved the way for the final revelation which is in Christ. So that you had to have that kind of knowledge, Gnosticism, that kind of thing going for you if you were going to understand all about Christ. But Colossians 2.8 tells us, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceits after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. He was so immersed in Greek philosophy that even Tertullian, who had his own false teachings, he asked in in relation to Justin, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? In other words, how does Greek philosophy have anything to do with scriptural theology? And he's right. And Justin Martyr was guilty of taking what he pleased from Greek, those things that pleased him, from Greek philosophy, and mixing it in with what he liked about Christianity. And as a result, his doctrine became corrupt. And that's always the pathway to corruption. Whenever we see something in the world and we want to bring it into the church. And I don't care what it is. Hold on, i got a tickle. That should flush it out. Kaylee, you're too kind. You're going to have to sit in the back somewhere. So yeah, we see something in the world and then we want to bring it into the church. Whether it be false teachings, worldly music, immodest dress, and we could go on and on. And since it pleases our flesh so much, we want to mix it in with the church because we figure why not mix two things together that bring us pleasure. Some amount of spirituality and some amount of the world. Let's just bring them together. 
You may recall King Ahaz tried that. He went up to Damascus. He saw an altar there that he liked. He had the priest uh, get a design of it. He made his own model of it. And he put that in the house of the Lord. It was mixing the things of the world with the things of God. And things that didn't belong in the house of God made their way into the house of God. So study Justin Martyr sometime his teachings, and it'll help you get a sense of what some of the prevalent teachings at that time were. And I I hate to move fast, but we really only have time for highlights. But if you'll read, Justin Martyr did what was called the uh, first apology. And if you ever read that, he's writing a a letter, if you will, to the Roman emperor to explain how Christians roll, why we should not be put to death, because we're really not much different than your Greek philosophy. And so he writes this thing, and, and he wrote two apologies, the first and the second, really, original names, amen. And so you can read the first apology of Justin, and as you read that, you'll see what he believed and what he is saying that the, the church by that point was already believing. And there was a lot of bad doctrine that was already in the church. And what's interesting in light of our series, I haven't found where he ever yet clearly confessed Christ to be God in the flesh. In fact... Um, I did an internet search. (laughs) Did Justin believe that, you know, not Justin, but Justin Martyr believe that Jesus was God in the flesh? And it came up as, it is unclear. He never said. And so I was reading through this apology trying to find if he did, and I haven't found it yet. He's vague in a lot of areas, but it seemed he believed in baptismal regeneration, works to remain saved, and at times he seemed to believe in the uh, doctrine of transubstantiation. Well, that's very Catholic. And so no wonder they embraced him as a church father and a saint. Well, Justin had his students. One of his was named Tatian. He rose to prominence. He embraced Justin's views, but he added his own views. Now, the thing about Tatian is he fully embraced Gnosticism, which was a result of Hellenization, mixing Greek culture and, and religion to, quote, Christian teachings. Because the Greeks sought after wisdom, they always wanted something new. I've met some Christians like that. They're not really happy in church unless the preacher gives them something wild. Wow, that's new. I haven't heard that. That's cool. That's the Greeks. They always want something new. And so remember, when Paul was in Athens, in Athens, Greece, in Acts 17... Uh, verses 18 through 21, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, or other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Aeropagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Parentheses, the Bible says, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's the Greek culture. That was the Greek mindset. The Apostle Paul refutes man's wisdom, and therefore Paul refutes all of Gnosticism. 
He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12-14, through 14, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so this whole idea that knowledge is salvation did not originate with Tatian, but it certainly was gaining ground by his teachings. I mean, Paul was dealing with it back there in the church of Corinth. And so it wasn't something new, but it was gaining momentum is what I'm trying to say. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, already shredded the idea of philosophies. And he said, they're garbage. You don't need that stuff. And we don't look to man's wisdom, amen, but we look to the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. We compare spiritual things with spiritual things. And what we got to be careful of is not mixing the old natural carnal man with the new man created in Christ. But Tatian was doing that. He also wrote a harmony of the Gospels where he changed the Word of God. And it was later found to be so corrupt that even a bishop in Syria, which by the way is where Antioch was located, he was throwing copies of it away. And he found over 200 in various churches that he was chucking because it was so bad, it was so manipulated, it was so changed. But like Tatian, like Justin Martyr, um, he also had a student, uh, or Tatian also had a student. And here comes Clement of Alexandria. It's interesting that that's always in his name. He's of Alexandria. Remember, that's the problem. Clement founded a school in Alexandria, Egypt, around 200 A.D., and we're starting to see now this connection to the corrupt text that came out of there. He was a, quote, New Age philosopher. He held Gnosticism, as did his predecessors. He was mixing paganism in as well. And he presented a brand of Christianity uh, which mixed Gnosticism, paganism, and Christianity. The New World Encyclopedia had this to say in their opening paragraph about Clement, quote, Clement of Alexandria was an early Christian philosopher and one of the most distinguished teachers of the church of Alexandria. He is known for his attempt to unite Greek philosophy with Christian teachings and drew a large number of educated pagans to the church. His passion for philosophy, especially for the teachings of Plato, contributed to the Hellenization of Christianity. And so he's blending Christianity and Greek philosophy in such a manner that even a worldly reference, a worldly encyclopedia saying, this man was doing this. And he was guilty of getting a lot of people to follow after that. You know, Alexandria was the place to go if you wanted to go get educated. It's kind of like I'll get to this in another message. But later on, people would just flock to Germany to get educated. Uh, but there was a wrong spirit coming out of Germany in the 1700s. Same thing was happening down in Alexandria, and Satan just recycled his tactic. And so, despite what even the world says about Clement, um, he's labeled as a Christian. Well, Clement's most well-known pupil was a man named Origen, Adamantius, Adamantius, also known historically as Origen of Alexandria. He was likely born around 184 and died around 253. And if we wanted to label an earthly man as the father of textual criticism, we would not be out of line 
to point our finger in his direction. Wikipedia (laughs) says this, textual criticism is a branch of textual scholarship and of literary criticism that is concerned with the identification of textual variants or different versions of either manuscripts or printed books. Textual criticism, and we're seeing this line develop. Origen demonstrated his textual criticism and his doubt about the Masoretic Hebrew text by compiling what's called the hexapla. And this was an Old Testament Bible with six different versions side by side. Think of it as a parallel Bible before it was cool. And so he had already developed this. Origen did not believe the scriptures could be understood as they were written. And he was quoted as saying, quote, The scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. End quote. Gnosticism. And because of that position, he believed if you wanted a clear interpretation of the Bible, you come to me. I'll give you what it says. Well, that's convenient for the Catholic Church. Amen. He became the dispenser of truth. And as Bill Byers would say, he sounds like the priest of Rome, the modernist, and yes, some Bible colleges. Origen also believed in baptismal regeneration. Here's another quote. Every soul that is born into flesh is sold by the filth of wickedness and sin. In the church, baptism is given for the remission of sins. And according to the usage of church, baptism is given even to infants. If there were nothing in infants which required the remission of sins and nothing in them pertinent to forgiveness, the grace of baptism would seem superfluous, unquote, or in quote. But that's not all. Origen even had some pre-life beliefs which look similar to Mormon teachings. Also similar to Buddhist teachings, if you want to go down that road. He believed the strength of the The soul was based upon victories and defeats of the previous life. Quote, Every soul comes into the world strengthened by the victories or weakened by the defeats of its previous life. Its place in the world as a vessel appointed to honor or dishonor is determined by its previous merits or demerits. Its work in this world determines its place in the world which is to follow this. End quote. Origen was messed up doctrinally in many ways, and he had other contrary beliefs. Uh, He believed the devils would be saved, that the planets and stars had souls, and Origen was in the camp of those who believed that the Bible is nothing more than an an entire allegory. And like people today in that camp, they totally dismissed the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Origen deliberately changed the scriptures to suit his own confused philosophy And in the process, he made many deletions we now find in the modern translations. Origen not only adopted the teachings of his predecessors, but he took things a step further, and he really is the man that laid the groundwork for the Dark Ages. And some of what he taught was eerily similar to what became known as Roman Catholicism. And you may wonder how this man can be so revered today, even called a church father by many. Well, if you mix enough truth in with your lies, you can convince a multitude who were never grounded. And that's even what we see today. People just don't know their Bibles. And some some guy can just get up and say whatever he wants, and people just believe it. Look at all the churches around in Rapid City. Why all these different teachings and doctrines about salvation? I'm not talking about just minor stuff. Right? I mean, okay, you don't want to, I don't know, 
Have the tooth fairy? Don't have the tooth fairy. We're talking about salvation. How can we have this many varying differences when we all say we have the same Bible? The Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so there was this progression of textual criticism which kept growing in momentum through these men. Little by little, generation after generation, false doctrine became more and more accepted. And so the Word of God was being more and more modified. And sure enough, false teachings and revisions hit its stride in Alexandria, the same place where the corrupted manuscripts take their name from. This is not a coincidence. Nor is it a coincidence that God told His people, don't go back to Egypt. And yet that's where modern Bibles are taken from. It just blows my mind. Well, after origin came two men, and we're almost done. Hang in there. I know if you hate history, you're like, man, just jab a pencil in my eye already. We're going to get through it, okay? (laughs) After origin came two men, one named Eusebius and the other Jerome. And both of those men loved and revered origin. And they studied his writings in Alexandria, Egypt. And that's where Jerome was educated. And he's the one that produced the Latin Bible, known as the Latin Vulgate. And it was brought about in 380 A.D., and that is the one revered by the Catholic Church for hundreds of years. A little before Jerome, in the days of Constantine, was Eusebius, who also loved Origen. He studied his writings also in Alexandria. And Eusebius is the one credited, now this is where we're going here, He's the one credited for compiling Origen's writings and he built upon Origen's work. He put them together and made what we know today is called the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. And those those manuscripts, they wouldn't have been known by that at the time, but that's what we know them as. And those two texts are part of the corrupted manuscript family that came out of Alexandria, Egypt, of which almost every New Testament today is translated from. And there's a lot more we could discuss about Eusebius, and we don't have time, with his connection to Constantine, and why when Constantine, quote-unquote, converted to Christianity, he wanted his own Bible. Well, guess who provided him that Bible? Eusebius. Because Constantine... I'm getting into it now. Constantine had called for a collection of churches, and 318 of them, bishops showed up. But the independent folks, amen, they said, we ain't coming. Well, I don't know how to say it in Latin or Greek, but what happened was, and, and, and this is, the, I probably should have spent more time on this. What, what happened was the church got in bed with the state. And, and the government, now all of a sudden Constantine's kind of the de facto runner of the church. And so you had now this marriage of church and state. And, and so it brought these two under... And listen, if you're going to have a corrupted church, you've got to have corrupted Bible. Or at least a corrupted understanding of it. But we know there's corrupted scriptures. And that's why there were those back then that are saying, we're not showing up to your conference. They had it right. So this, er, this is the early trail from the first century apostles to corrupt doctrines which led to corrupt text which became the sources of our corrupted churches and Bibles. So 
the Apostle Paul warned against all this. I covered this in another message, but let me read this to you again from Galatians 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And I'll, I'll have to leave it here for now, but after Eusebius and Jerome, after the corruption of God's word, the dark ages began. Interesting. And, and it definitely was spiritually dark. The world today doesn't want to call it the dark ages. It's like the middle ages or something stupid. No, no, no. It used to be called the dark ages for a reason. And it went spiritually dark. The Roman Catholic Church really took over. And they became so powerful that they wanted to keep the common man from having a copy of the Word of God. Even their own copy. They didn't want man to have it because why? Come to us. We'll tell you what truth is. And they would persecute those who didn't line up with them. And i got to shut it down, but it's been estimated that literally... Millions were martyred throughout the Dark Ages for their faith, for standing against things like infant baptism. Our Baptist fathers were in that group, known by different names at times, but held to right doctrine with the pure Word of God. Some of those early manuscripts managed to survive through the Dark Ages. In time, a copy of the Vaticanus, and I'm not talking about the Latin Vulgate, but I'm talking about that, that Greek. In time, the Vaticanus made its way to the Vatican Library, hence the name, and it was rediscovered after lying dormant on a shelf in 1481. Too bad it didn't just remain on the shelf. And in 1859, the Sinaiticus was rediscovered in a Catholic monastery at the base of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Not the same Mount Sinai in the Bible, though they claim it is, but it's not. And next time we're going to consider how a revised spirit of textual criticism after the Dark Ages, it was ripening the Western world to receive and embrace a corrupted manuscript, and therefore in time would embrace a corrupted English translation. And so this is some of the groundwork that we're laying to when we start to compare. So I, I know that was dry tonight. Some of you are like, thank God this is over. Can we just, can we just fellowship or something? Um, I'm going to give you that opportunity after we pray. <laughs> Almighty Father, thank you so much for your word. I, I mean it, Lord. We are blessed. We are a blessed people tonight. We not only have your word, we can readily go buy it. All of us can have a copy God, I pray we would take it serious enough to be in your word, to read it, to meditate upon it, to study it, to memorize it. And God, help us to be a people of the book. And Lord, I hope it's okay that we're laying some groundwork here extra biblically. But Lord, I think these things are important for your people to understand why we stand on the manuscript we do. And so help us through this series to see the importance of this topic. And now, Lord, we pray you dismiss us with your blessings. Keep us safe as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.